hi. <laughs> hi, Ashley. How's it going? Hey, Carla. Uh, it's going well over here. How are you doing? I'm good. Recovering from Fourth of July weekend. How about you? <laughs> yeah, same. But I know we were chatting earlier, and it sounds like you had quite the trek this weekend. You had a um, a mountainous trek. Would you like to tell our listeners about that at all? So I went hiking with my partner and some friends and we tried to conquer this peak called Strawberry Peak and it conquered us and <laughs> I have no I have no experience like bouldering or wall climbing or anything like that so I got to this like really steep part and then I said nope this is it but um for like a seven hour hike it and a couple like really good conversations that I had with the people I was with in the end, it was definitely fun and worth it, and I learned a lot about myself. <laughs> and it was, you know, one of those moments where it's like, it reveals something, I think. I tried, maybe I'm trying to give it a lot of meaning and make it, like, deeper than it was. Or, yeah, like, if you don't do it right and if you don't have the right gear and if you go at the wrong time of day, there's mountain lions and there's, like, heat stroke and there's all of these things that, you know, you want to consider. So that was my weekend. But it's and it cool sounds to- like it was a good practice <laughs> in like boundaries. Like you were like, you know what? Oh yeah. Physical this boundaries. As far as I'm going and I win. Yeah. Mental boundaries. And then overcoming defeat. So maybe we can talk about that later, but I definitely mm. felt defeated because I didn't make it all the way to the summit. But then you, I had to be like, you know what? We made it pretty far. Like it's good. It's fine. Like nobody's judging us. Nobody's like you know, saying like, you guys are losers for not making it all the way to the top. Um, not to mention yeah. people go um, on these hikes multiple times and do it over and over again. And like, you know what I mean? Yeah. So you, you're practicing every time you do it. Yeah, definitely practice and patience and presence. So my friend Gabe that I was talking to during this hike was really teaching me a lot about presence and then being grateful and we we had one of those like really introspective conversations like religion and spirituality and like mental health and um it was super cool and that really made it worth it because I really love those kinds of conversations I did a little getaway and on the 4th of July which was yesterday as we were recording this um ended up at like a state fair in Tyanesta Pennsylvania And was just like riding the kitty Ferris wheel and watching the fireworks. And it was honestly amazing. Like, I sometimes I talk a lot of shit on like Western PA. um, But, but I've been trying to embrace the presence more like you were talking about and just enjoying all those little things that are just so kitschy about Western PA, Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. like state fairs and like fried Oreos and like the smell of, of cows in a pasture, you know, just like, (laughs) so it was really enjoyable for that. I went to Applebee's. I mean, like just all these things, like I just really owned my Western Pennsylvania experience this weekend. 
I'm super excited to introduce our guests. Melissa Yang joined the Emory Writing Program faculty in 2019 after completing her PhD in English in Composition and Rhetoric at the University of Pittsburgh. She teaches a range of courses from environmental composition to professional writing and will begin directing the Emory Writing Center in August 2021. Her research hones in on stories of birds and words, poultry and poetry, and revolves around the question of what can we learn about writing from birds? Yeah, I'm super excited to jump into this conversation. Melissa, welcome to Itty Bitty Coping Committee. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yes, Melissa, it's so good to see you. Tell us how you've spent the pandemic because you have moved around a lot. So give us your trajectory of how you've kind of moved around yourself just before the pandemic, during the pandemic, and where you are right now. Well, I tried to not move during the pandemic because that was a safety concern. So I actually stay put. <laughs> but uh, before the pandemic, I moved from Pittsburgh to Atlanta. So uh, theoretically, I am based in Atlanta, but physically, I am currently in Pittsburgh. Uh, ever since receiving the vaccine, I decided Pittsburgh was the first place I had to return. Um, all my friends are there and I love it there. So I am back. Uh, but during the pandemic, for the bulk of it, I was actually back home uh, with my family in the southern New Hampshire where I grew up. So that's where I uh, was not planning to spend as much time there as I did. Uh, I think that's the case for many of us who, you know, early in the pandemic decided we need to go somewhere with people and then ended up stuck in that place for many months. Um, so it's kind of weird because I had packed you know, just my winter clothes thinking I'd be there for like a few months and then ended up there until summer. And as I was coming to Pittsburgh, like I was going through my childhood uh, attic, like, you know, the suitcases of my clothes from high school being like, what can I bring that I can still fit into? So that was a fun adventure. But, <laughs> yep. So now I'm back in Pittsburgh through mid-August and then I have to go back to Atlanta. I like wow. that you sort of talked about being stuck, like that feeling of being stuck when you were at your in your hometown. I mean, how do you deal with that? Because I know a lot of people throughout the pandemic felt stuck, maybe not just physically. I know I've definitely been feeling it um, emotionally stuck, like maybe like this feeling of one of my friends threw around the term pandemic languishing. Like, how do you get mm -hmm. out of that feeling or how have, how have you sort of navigated that? I think it's the same way that a lot of people uh, did uh, through very long walks. Um, so I spent a lot of time walking in the woods. Um, Southern New Hampshire, I, you know, originally, I, I feel like I, it's not even fair to use the language of stuck because in some ways I was, but I didn't care for New Hampshire growing up in it. And on my return, this is my first time spending a lot of time there since I was, you know, college age, before college. And I kind of felt like I had a rejuvenated relationship to the place that I could more intentionally pursue by exploring what was there. And I mm -hmm. found just about every week I was finding new hiking trails that I didn't know existed. Um, and I actually, I, I was surprised that even staying with my family, I, you know, I, I was worried that we would come out on the other end, like hating each other, <laughs> that we already did. But actually, <laughs> I, I think because we intentionally we were respectful of the space, I think, and the shared space in a way that was 
nice. Living at home as an adult is very different than living at home when your parents are like in charge of what you're doing with your life. So, um, so it was like, I got to connect with my parents in a different way and also connect with the space that I grew up in a different way. So it ended up being kind of an interesting learning experience. So in some ways, you know, I was making the best of a, you know, weird situation, but I genuinely did appreciate um, what, you know, being in that place did for me. But that's so cool that you got to like re-experience almost a place where you thought maybe you were like super familiar with like where you grew up. Mm -hmm. And now you have a whole new outlook on it. So tell me, Melissa, what do you love about Pittsburgh so much? Oh my gosh, where to begin? Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, wherever I go, I run into people I know. Um, mm-hmm. And I love that it's a small enough city that that can happen. I just, yeah, the sense of community, the art scene, the acro scene, just all of these things um, together make it a really wonderful place. I went to the museum for the first time since I got my vaccine over the weekend and that was so exciting to see art again. So there's just, I could go on and on, but I just, yeah, I love Pittsburgh. You were talking a little bit about like the anxiety you had and how do you both feel now that restrictions are sort of lifting and we're not really seeing masks as much as we have in the past? I hate it. I wear my mask everywhere. I have the sense that everyone wearing their masks are the people who are vaccinated and the people who aren't are not, um, mm. which I know is not a fair generalization, but that is, that's where I am with it. So I wear my mask. So you're still a mask wearer everywhere. Oh yeah. How about you all? Carla, how do you feel about that? <laughs> What's it like in California? Okay. So yeah, things are opening up. I'm in the habit of just like making sure I have a mask in the car or in my pocket or in my purse. Um, Definitely don't leave the house without it. And I was at the grocery store yesterday wearing one. And then I was like, oh yeah, I don't have to wear this. But then I felt weird without it. And then I just didn't know exactly how to like like behave. Yeah, I just feel weird about it. You know, I'm in the habit of it, but I loved wearing a mask during the pandemic, mostly because the anonymity of it. But now it just kind of messes up my lipstick and I'm just like, oh, I have to like fix that. <laughs> so you that. mean you liked being anonymous? I really did. Yeah, I, I liked being anonymous, but that was probably a lie I was telling myself because I was like biking. I saw a friend and I, even though like we recognized each other, He's like, oh, yeah, I totally knew it was you. And I was like, oh, great. Like, this mask doesn't do shit. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But as far as as far as like COVID is concerned, you know, I was always phased by the mask anyway. And what I mean by that is like, I know that in a lot of like, let's say, like wearing a mask is not new to like, fashion and it's not new to other countries where there's like mass pollution people in other places have been wearing masks for like years now right so it I always kind of thought about it as yeah like a safety concern and like a fashion thing does that make sense I don't know yeah like that's interesting (laughs) because I feel like I really liked masks because I thought the masks that people picked said something about their personality (gasps) yes totally that was really fun and yeah and I missed that a little bit 
yeah. actually a lot. What, <laughs> what kind what of kind mask? Of, yes, you I have, was... Melissa. <laughs> oh, do I have? Yeah, well, actually, let tell me us. tell you about the collection of bird masks I have. I, I thought there would I be something about that. I have two sets of pigeon masks. I have. <laughs> uh masks with little I don't know what they are little songbirds you know I I really yeah I really leaned into the the bird apparel and then sometimes I'm concerned it clashes with the rest of my outfit but you know I I think I've gotten over that oh yeah I I my favorite masks um were these ones that I found on I think they're called Bagu and maybe they can sponsor us just saying (laughs) and they were like recycled material these really bright sort of mismatching material that and they actually tied so your face it didn't have to fit your face perfectly it would tie around and you could like tighten it as much as you needed to but they were like these bright I felt like anytime I'm like feeling down if I wear bright colors then Mm -hmm. it cheers me up a little bit so yeah I remember you wearing those that's super cool and they had like the cool like nose thing where you like your glasses wouldn't fog right or something Mm -hmm. like that well yeah they would just they just fit your face really well cool and I kind of have like have some oh. artistic ones right like some yeah colorful. I had yeah I had like a flower print one that I got a lot of compliments on and I really liked wearing but just like any other like article of clothes or like expression I kind of got tired of it after a while and then I just didn't wear it anymore and I was really into like the black medical ones now I just use like whatever's in the car like probably the blue one not to mention Um, like we all realize that the medical grade masks are superior to the non-medical grade masks mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. so there's the trade-off of like is this environmentally friendly and cute or is it like actually protecting me from covid and here's the double masking phase too when you know yeah yeah it didn't Mm -hmm. last too long but yeah you're right so one last thing about masks like do you all think that it's here to stay like do you think there's going to be like remnants of like a couple people wearing them I think so but also I am Taiwanese and my Mm. family you know when they go to Taiwan they always wear masks and that's always been true for as long as I can remember and so Mm. I can't imagine why they wouldn't I'm going to wear them during cold and flu season, like, mm. forever, because I talked to a lot of people who were like, I didn't get any colds or any flu, you know, at all. And those numbers are obviously have been going down because people have been staying apart, but also because they're wearing masks. And we know that masks work. So, yeah, why not? At least during, like, the when we can't sort of keep up the social distancing when it starts to get cold outside for us here on the east coast Carla (laughs) and um, you know let's get to the important part of your writing Melissa Uh, I think we all know what I'm gonna say here and it's jizz when I just a few years after I met you Melissa you had been working on this paper about linguistics and about the word jizz and its origins and the many definitions of it. And this paper, you have been working on it for a long time and then it got some recognition here and it's been published in the Interdisciplinary Studies in Literature and the Environment. Tell us how, first of all, tell us the origins of jizz and tell us what makes you so, what made you so interested in 
this topic in linguistics, the sort of the trajectory of this paper that you wrote. Yeah, as you mentioned, it's been so long that I wish I could remember the origins of the project itself as well <laughs> as I could remember the origin of the word jizz. Um, but I will say, I, I should say it's not a linguistics paper. And I want to say that as a caveat because I am not a linguist. And I feel like if any linguists are listening, they'll be like, what are you talking about? Because I, I, <laughs> okay. I don't know anything. I don't want to say I don't know anything about linguistics because that's also a lie, but I'm not trained as a linguist. I'm a composition and rhetorician person. Uh, but I'm interested in sort of how people use language and the ways that language has changed in ways that are different than kind of the more technical aspects of mm. um, etymology. That being said, so, so I guess I should say that I'm interested in the cultural phenomenon that is jizz. Um, and so the term, um, as we <laughs> know it in the American co context, uh, tends to be used as, you know, the slang term for semen. But I was looking at how it developed originally in British English most likely as a method of field identification uh, implemented mostly by skilled bird watchers and other naturalists around the world. Um, so it's a term that some people will define um, kind of synonymously as GIST um, and also as the acronym GISS, General Impression of Shape and Size, um, as just a quick way, you know, when a bird flies by and you can say, oh, that has the jizz of a sparrow or something. And you don't know if it's a, you know, song sparrow or a house sparrow, but you know that it looks sparrow-like, it's small, it's got this sort of wave of flight um, and the shape of tail or whatever. And so there's a lot of stories about how jizz came to be. And so some people thought, oh, it came from war terminology uh, and G-I-S-S -S is a uh, acronym for uh, a method of flying, uh, identifying flying aircrafts. But then people were like, no, that's not actually where it came from. That's just an acronym. Um, so there's kind of back and forth around that. And so I was really interested in the ways in which these definitions were speaking to each other, we're kind of taking us in little circles um, through history and through different oral histories. And so there's actually been some, um, a, a few good articles written on it, but they had never been brought together before. So I was interested in creating that landscape of pieces that had been written about this to kind of construct it. And, so, and also the utility of this term, both as like this model um, for ways of interesting for interesting words and ways of looking at words, um, but also like in thinking about teaching different ways of reading. And so that, and so yeah, thinking about field identification and uh, this kind of, this sort of expertise that's developed through jizz. And how was that received in the academic community? Did it lead you into these strange, awkward conversations with uh, academics? So interestingly enough, I think the best conversations that have come of it have been birders who have found me on Twitter. And so <laughs> there's been <laughs> a few birders uh, associated with Birding Magazine, actually the books editor there. I, I don't remember how at, at some point we found each other on Twitter and I don't, I don't remember exactly what, but, but one of them like tweets me whenever jizz comes up. <laughs> and I was just like, this is great because I can sort of keep my fingers on the pulse of this term as it's uh, circulating and birding world and beyond. And every now and then people on Twitter realize, you know, this other meaning of jizz. And then uh, one of the editors of Birding Magazine will tag me and just be like, so Melissa, what do you think? Um, and most recently, Birding World has de decided that they don't like the term jizz and they want to re replace it with vibes. Um, so <laughs> vibes? Vibes, like the vibes of a bird. 
which is, I mean, it is generally the gist of the term. So it's interesting right. how, because, you know, oh, wow. just feel uncomfortable, but I love I, that. I'm a fan of it. Vibes of a bird is also very cool. Mm-hmm. And vibe has that subcultural slang to it as well. Yeah, so interesting. So it's still developing. So maybe the sequel vibes will be coming at some point. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Melissa, how long have you been birding? Like, so I apparently started birding when I was living in California, um, right after college. And I had gone on a few bird walks in the Presidio when I lived in San Francisco because there were just some really great leaders there. But I was not an avid birder. I grew up with birds, like pet birds, cocktails and parakeets and a finch. Um, so I've always loved birds, but I had never really looked at birds in the wild until around that time. I also didn't really get into birding then. I just went on the occasional bird walks. It wasn't until years later when I was in my PhD program and I couldn't get away from writing about birds. I did not go to my PhD program planning to write about birds, but I just kept writing about birds. And at some point I realized, you know, I I was writing about taxidermy birds, mostly dead birds. And I thought I need to go look at living birds. And so it wasn't until like the last two years of my PhD probably and the time that I was writing this essay about gins, because I had to research birding and I had to do it experientially for me to feel like I knew a, I knew what I was writing about. And I feel really strongly about doing that in everything that I write. Like I need to feel really embodied and connected to my work. And I need to try to figure it out from as many research angles as I can tackle. And so learning how to bird was part of the project Um for me in writing that essay and in writing other pieces about birds. So yeah, mm-hmm. it was kind of the latter half of my PhD, I really started getting into it. Um, and I did my first birding competition, which I did not win um, anything, but it was so much fun uh, when I got to Pittsburgh like a few weeks ago. Oh, wow. How does that work? What is a birding competition? I went with my friend, Kim, um, the one who has rescue pigeons, who I get to pigeon sit later this summer. I'm very excited about it. Um, <laughs> but she wanted to put together a little team. And so she uh, brought me and then one of her friends, Molly, who works at the aviary. And they are both way more skilled at ear birding than I am. So they can hear and they can listen for birds and can identify a bunch of them. And I can sometimes get like the main ones like um, who are very close to me. And so it's a skill set I'm still learning, but we went out for a weekend and tried to hit as many spots as we could and, um, and just count as many birds as we could over the weekend. And I think the winning teams, you know, had maybe over a hundred some, and I, we definitely, we were like 60 some, I think. Um, but that was still more birds than I've seen in a weekend or heard in a weekend. I didn't see all of them. A lot of them they heard. And I was like, yes, I believe you. <laughs> so do people just like lie to win birding competitions? So like, what do you win? This is an interesting, uh, so yes, but mostly no, like <laughs> it has happened and um, there's a term in the birding world. And this is another term that I will someday write an essay about, I think um, called a stringer. Um, so someone who strings along, um, Someone, so you know eBird, this is the app that birders will use to keep track of the birds that they see. There are people who, competitive birders, I have heard legend of, I don't personally know these people, but you know, in any hobby, there's going to be some cheaters. And so there are people who will list the birds they've seen and then maybe add one or two more. Um, And they kind of string people along and because it's only, you know, one or two people aren't going to really suspect them. But in some cases it is your best guess. Mm -hmm. Um, there's no one to verify like oh yes you definitely heard that 
warbler or whatever. You, you mm-hmm. have to trust your skill set and your field guides and your apps. You mentioned like being embodied in your work and then having to study live birds because you were into like taxidermied birds. And then you wrote an essay about a raven, right? As well. I did. Mm-hmm. Yes, about the taxidermy raven. And that's actually the essay that got me into grad school. Um, I wrote it first as an undergrad. Um, and it was, you know, back in the day when uh, I'm, I'm sure as, you know, writers, you know, you know, 13 ways of looking at a blackbird and it's, you know, a classic you have to study by Wallace Stevens, you know, love mm-hmm. him or hate him, but he's influential. Um, and so I, I was doing a play on that and it was 13 ways of looking at Grip the Raven, which is the, ta- the raven who influenced Edgar Allan Poe to write his poem about the raven, but it's also the pet bird of Charles Dickens um, and who was fictionalized in Barnaby Rudge, um, one of his novels. And so I was looking at the, all the different manifestations of this bird. And also Charles Dickens had three different ravens. Some people think they were all named Grip. Uh, some people say only the first one was named Grip anyway. So there's, so I was looking at all of the different ways of, yeah, fictionalizing this bird, poeticizing this bird, taxidermying this bird. Um, That was such a fun project. And so when I first started my grad program, I had used that essay as my um, writing sample. And so, but I had told them that I wanted to do a dissertation about writing centers, which is like not at all related to this. But when I got there, people were just like, no, the bird stuff is really interesting. You should push them. (laughs) Um, And so I got research money to take a taxidermy workshop. So I did that. Taxidermy to chicken. I named her Zelda and then I lost her. I feel really bad about that. Oh I think she, no, I think I left her in one of my Pittsburgh basements when I'm, <laughs> <laughs> and I feel so guilty oh. about it, but one day, maybe that's when I, I don't write fiction, but some days I'm like, you know, if I were ever to write fiction, I, I would write something about Zelda and what, what happened to Zelda. That is so funny. Melissa, I feel like it's important for you to tell our listeners where all of this gothic if that's the word um topics mm-hmm. where all gothic topics come from could you we're talking like taxidermy ravens um teeth I know you write a lot about teeth which is really interesting talk about your gothic youth please I was kind of a you know aspirational gothic youth I would say I, I never really lean into it into the aesthetic fully I had very strict Asian parents so you know I can only do it to a degree but it's interesting because I think I've always had an interest in the morbid and I don't know where it comes from but I was one of those kids in grade school who got really into serial killer stories and all my friends who I made were because we were all into the same serial killers and then we would take law and ethics school and our law and ethics teacher would be like you're the least ethical kids ever like what are you doing and I mean we did it you know we would say really awful things in class just to play devil's advocate I don't do that anymore I'm a teacher I know that's annoying but um, but back in the day I feel like that yeah that drove a lot of my interests growing up a part of my life I I like really dark film I like I like to push the limits on what I can handle like I think I'm constantly and maybe this is like a self-challenge thing like I like to see I like to challenge myself um, and see what, um, I don't really, it's not even what I can accept. I, I don't quite know what it is. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about limits, maybe. 
I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you IRL, but I feel like we have a lot in common because I also, I leaned heavily into like a gothic aesthetic school and my parents were like, what the fuck is happening? Where did we go wrong? And I have like, I grew up in like a kind of a strict, you know, um, uh, Hispanic household. So they were just like, totally just they they were confused i was confused i don't know what was going on but i was definitely shopping at um like a hot topic and i got in trouble for like wearing spikes um at a homecoming dance i was trying to (laughs) wear i mean spikes on the outfit yeah oh on my neck i had like a spiky i had a spiky necklace and i was yeah yeah yeah, i'm like what's wrong with this and then like which really got great yeah exactly like a spiky bracelet and like spikes on my like on my boots and all kinds of stuff but you know it really made me think of yeah like limits in a way and my innate I would say possibly like disdain for like authority or like like right like we're pushing like how far can I go with this like can I really go like in a full like like what kind of music can I get into what kind of films my parents were like, oh, you just want attention. But I was like, no, I'm like, I'm genuinely interested in like these weird movies, this weird music, quote unquote, you know, that's just the fact like it made me kind of a giddy and excited like hearing you talk about um, like the intersection of like, back to your bio, like the poultry and poetics and like Edgar Allan Poe being inspired by this like taxidermy bird named Grip, which I had no idea had such a like incredible history and like, where do you know where Grip is now in the world? Yes, Grip is in the Free Library of Philadelphia. You can go visit him in the special collections. Wow, um, the shadow box. Did you That's guys, so cool. when you were ki- when you were kids, did you? Because it sounds like we all had conservative parents to a degree. I mean, I went to Catholic school for like seven years. Did you have certain media that you were that were like confiscated or that like you had to hide? that you weren't allowed to look at in front of your parents? I'm just thinking for me, for me, it was TLC's Crazy Sexy Cool. And, you know, I may or may not have been like dancing like TLC in the middle of my living room as like a eight-year-old. So, you know, I could see how it would maybe be problematic, but great album. It's interesting because I think my parents were more conservative in terms of what they let me do with my time but in terms of books they always let me read whatever I wanted to read um Mm -hmm. if they thought I was spending too much time reading for fun and not doing my work I remember my dad would sometimes hide my books and that would make me very angry but it wasn't like oh this is an inappropriate piece of media so that's where you probably really delved into like these that's probably where you found a lot of your personality right I had freedom there there was like some of the freedom I could grasp To this day, like, I joke a lot with my parents about everything they hid from me. So you're right. Like, they definitely hid CDs (laughs) from me, books from me. I found the books. Oh, like, I would dig. I I was a little detective. I went and, like, found my shit again. I really, really, really hate to, like, admit this as an adult, but I I think I'm not the only one. But um, I was into, like... Um, I guess what you could call like alt rock, right? Like I was listening to like really bad music subjectively and objectively like corn, 
Slipknot kind of and just like my dad just like didn't understand like why do you like this and again (laughs) aesthetically I I think I was just experimenting and like trying to find myself you know because I definitely grew out of a phase I grew out of that phase if they would have just let me have that freedom I might have a lot more like a broader perspective because I definitely was like trying to claim something as my own and it definitely was not my own you know what I mean I was borrowing these like I was appropriating different like cultural like phenomena you know and I was just honestly looking for myself because I don't know I just didn't have not I'd never fully identified with even like a goth aesthetic or like the punks or the skaters or any of those people like I never was I I was kind of a shapeshifter in a way because I would go from like these different groups but yeah, my parents definitely hid my CDs. So I'm we have that in common. DLC were in the I know, right? Like the closet. Right, exactly. But, but then also w- go ahead, Carla. Uh, oh no. I was gonna say really quick that like I'm pretty sure it was like one Halloween when I was like 14 and I put on black lipstick and I was like, this is awesome. And I just was like <laughs> rocking black lipstick for a year so that's amazing that's my that's my turn what's when I turned goth Melissa well, your thing was yeah, eyeliner well, right I yes I wore a lot of black eyeliner uh-huh. once upon uh, a time the cat amazing. eye yeah don't do it anymore my eyes are ruined <laughs> <laughs> what really I mean I just have really dry eyes I used to wear contacts too mm. and um I don't know what's wrong with my eyes but I I think when I, I think I started wearing contacts when I was too young and I didn't take it, like, I didn't take them out enough. That's really interesting. I, I, do you ever, well, I have, like, a question and then, like, kind of a follow-up. Like, do you miss it in a way? Sometimes, because I, I mean, there are occasional times, you know, when we do circus shows and things like that, where I'm like, Mm. oh, it'd be really fun to put on, you know, fun makeup. And then I'll put it on for five minutes and my eyes start itching and I'm like, nope, can't do this. And that (laughs) that does make me sad because, you know, when you do acro, it can be hard to wear glasses. Mm. My glasses have yet to fly off, but they've definitely gotten knocked around a little bit. I think there was one or two acro performances where I tried to wear contacts, but like my eyes start itching halfway through and it, it just mm. distracts me. So I just, mm. no, it, do- it doesn't help the aesthetic, but I'm just leaning into my nerd side now. And that's just <laughs> what it is. Well, my follow-up was just like a quick side note. There's this author, R.O. Kwan, and she wrote a, a fictional novel called The Incendiaries. Oh, I think I follow I- her on Twitter. Go I on. do too. No, right. I, okay, awesome. I own that so, book, but I haven't read it yet. <laughs> so you all already know about Aro Kwan, which is amazing. And she was talking about the like very heavy eyeliner that she wears. And she and this kind of became a trademark of hers. First it was like I remember her talking about like first it was kind of like a, a mask, but then it became it evolved into like this power and empowerment of like this is like she just claimed it leaned into it this is her and like in an interview she's quoted as saying that it's like her superhero power it mm-hmm. is this eyeliner nobody else ha- like does it like she does you know it's like very heavy line and it's mm-hmm. not even like cat eye or anything it's like un- in the under eye area yeah. and like my personal opinion is like that aesthetic is really beautiful and like she's a beautiful person in and out but just like finding this one thing that kind of is fully you you know and we, mm-hmm. we've been talking about ma- like literal masks and like now figurative masks and expression and like identity and like finding yourself and similar to what you were saying Melissa about like like dressing up for a part 
and I wanted to definitely talk about acro and like I was going jogging the other day and suddenly I was like you know what I kind of want to put on glitter and go jogging and I know it's gonna sweat right off but it's gonna be super fun (laughs) and I don't really care like and Ashley you were talking about wearing colors and like making yourself kind of feel better and I've been really into you know kind of like workout clothes that's colorful and bright and my boyfriend was like why are you putting makeup we're gonna go jogging and I was like because I want to and that's yep. enough. Like, I really don't mm-hmm. need another reason. Plus, it's glitter. Who doesn't want that? And <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, try it. Try it. Let's do it. Like, I want to. Yeah. It definitely uplifted my mood. So I totally I'm relating to like definitely what you said. It's super cool. Well, I was going to ask if that's how you two met was through Acro. I think and maybe so, it is, right? I believe yeah. so. It's been so long. <laughs> I was going to say um, through writing circles, we might know each yeah, other too, mm-hmm. but I think primarily through acro. So there's a, an intersection of like acro and writers. Is it just us? Or uh, is it, I think yeah, there there's not others. a lot of writers, mostly they're engineers. Yeah, it is oh, mostly okay. engineers. It's a, a very crazy number of engineers in acrobatics. Yeah, so weird. Ooh, well, how, how did, did you get it, into acro? Yeah. Hmm. So also in San Francisco, um, which is an interesting thing, I, I realized both like acro and birding, I started when I lived in San Francisco and it was such, I was only there for two years. So it was a very sort of short period of my life, but where I found two of the most formative things. I really like collaborating with other people. Um, And so when I moved to Pittsburgh shortly thereafter, I was looking for an acro scene and sometimes I would see people doing acro. I was always too nervous to approach them because I'm just like really shy and awkward and I didn't want to go up to people and be like, hey, can I join in? And it was actually really fortuitous. I was at a picnic with one of my friends from grad school and she, uh, her partner had gone to CMU with these two um, friends, both named David. This is another pattern in my life, um, meeting a lot of Pittsburgh Davids. I have a numbering system also for them. <laughs> they all know this there's david's one through six and so i refer to them as like d1 d2 d3 anyway it's really bad because there's a lot of davids in the city um a lot but david the first is an acrobat and one of the community leaders i love it it's just the most incredible way to connect with people and to connect with people in a really creative and collaborative way it makes me communicate in ways yeah, in, in really playful ways, you get to feel like you're a kid again. <laughs> it really mm-hmm. is. I, I feel like the sense of childlike wonder is just there every time you do acro. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a Definitely. really cool picture of you, Melissa, on your website. If someone is lifting you mm-hmm. where you kind of look like a bird. Yes. It's a consistent brand. So the basic position in Acro is called bird. <laughs> so. Yes. And I don't know if you did this on purpose, but the background of this picture has birds on it as well. Mm-hmm. That was specifically. Yes. I'm <laughs> going to guess that was intentional. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's, that was a bird mural we saw in Detroit. It says turkey, duck, and chicken. So all mm-hmm. birds. <laughs> And you, you are being pretty much lifted. In a hybrid is, that, is yeah. what that pose is called. Well, is, would you say, okay, so you both mentioned like collaboration and expression and creativity. Um, do you two find that these elements kind of seep into other areas of your life and especially your creative and like writing and. Yeah, I was actually, at, um, so there's the international writing centers 
association conference that happens and I ran a special interest group on academics and acrobatics. And so we actually brought together a group of people interested in different uh, circus arts to do this um, session where we talked about the ways of teaching. Um, in, and so in writing centers, I, I don't know how familiar you are with sort of the pedagogy between writing centers, but it's a collaborative way of talking about writing where you put two people in a room and technically there's a tutor and a 2T, um, but you're sort of co-constructing knowledge and the tutor is kind of guiding the writer in a way that empowers them to become a stronger writer. And so when we do acro, there's kind of, I mean, there's different roles. It's not quite tutor 2T, but there's a base and a flyer role usually. And so you have to work together to um, create things together. And, and we're looking at ways of balancing and giving and receiving in, in ways that, yeah, I, I think mirror each other in interesting ways. I think for me, it's different. I don't, I don't necessarily feel like the connection as strongly. Like I came to Acro from a yoga background. Well, I have zero experience with Acro, um, but it looks beautiful. And I also, it seems that, um, well, first of all, I have a question about how that community, uh, kind of coped with COVID was it totally canceled and like is it slowly coming back or did, were there like pods of people doing it subversively so it is complicated <laughs> without getting too uh yeah um too into the details of it but there were definitely some people who did pods safely some people who did pods irresponsibly um some people who just didn't do pods and just you know, continued on. And some of those people I don't associate with anymore. And then there were some people like me who just didn't do acro at all. It, it kind of runs the gamut of any other activity, but in acro in particular, because it is so intimate um, and you really do have to share space and breath. Yeah, it was hard. It, it's a hard thing to do safely in a lockdown situation, I think. So for me, the, you know, I think a lot of us, we kind of just stopped doing acrobatics altogether partner acrobatics altogether and we did a lot of people that I have been close to especially in the acro community have worked on a lot of their own personal skills like there was a lot of hands solo handstand training for example there was a lot of solo work that we could do to progress coming back into it after not doing it for 16 months has been a really challenging thing mentally maybe even more than physically um I will do things that I used to be really comfortable with like jumping into a handstand in someone's hands and just feel so much fear because I just haven't stood that high up in the air on someone's body in, in over <laughs> a year and it's like oh my gosh do they have me are they going to drop me will I fall down because I don't remember the technique and these were things that some of you know some of these moves I I almost took for granted a second nature because I used to train so often and I was joking that you know these are things I used to do on you know pavement now I'm like a five mat <laughs> flyer I need to do things on like five mats to feel comfortable <laughs> doing that. so it, it's it's progressing I, I'm trying to do acro about twice a week now um, with my little group well thank you for that insight and thank you for um, letting us pick your brain a little bit and letting us, you know, into, into your life. We like to close out the episode with like, um, free therapy tips for our listeners. Would you happen to have one for us? So one of the most useful things 
I think I got out of my own therapy sessions. Um, and I was joking with someone that therapy was really weird for me during the pandemic. I mean, it's weird for everyone all the time, I think, but my therapist has two young children and she was working from home and, you know, the, her toddler was always climbing all over her. And, you know, part of my therapy was like, wow, at least that's not happening to me right now, which is really <laughs> terrible. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> anyway, so I was having a really hard time structuring my time working from home. And mm. one of the things that I really wanted to do was to fit in time to read for fun again. Um, and this mm -hmm. is something that I thought, you know, it can't be that hard, but I really struggled with it, especially after finishing my PhD. I just, you know, reading was like all the time work for me and I just couldn't do it for enjoyment anymore. But the therapy point um, that my therapist had told me, and this is kind of such a common sense tip, but she told me to track the transitions between my day. Like, what did I do to mark the end of an activity and the beginning of the next one? And was there something that made a particular activity connect or lead up to a different one in a better way? And, you know, as a writer, we think about transitions all the time. Um, like, how do we transition between paragraphs, between sentences? I never really thought about transitions in my life or in my day or in like any sort of time. And so thinking about transitions um, is something that I've been trying to do more uh, consciously that I got from therapy. I think you can also think of that as cycles. Like you're, you're talking mm. about it in a micro sense, like day to day. For me, something that I've worked through in therapy is like beginnings, middles and ends of cycles in your life. Um, mm. So if you're really bad at like endings, for example, like I struggle with endings. I love new beginnings um, and the middles are like, okay. And like the endings are, are what's tough for me. So yeah, like if you can find a way to like ritualize that, it, it can help. So some profound wisdom from, from your therapist, Melissa. It was so yeah. good to see you guys. I'm glad that you were both yeah. able to meet and- Yes, it's been such a great conversation. And I really loved learning about everything that you're into, Melissa. And thank you for the inspiration. Okay. Yeah, thank good you. Night. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.